Hi, I'm George Abernathy, the proud president of FreightWaves, and welcome to day one of our Global Supply Chain Week, the initial Global Supply Chain Week for FreightWaves. Today is our Military Aerospace and Manufacturing Day, and I'm really thrilled to be able to help to foster some conversation today in our keynote fireside with Scott Paul. Scott, thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. George, it's great to be with you and with your audience at uh, FreightWaves today. Appreciate that. Let me do some level setting for everybody uh, quickly about Scott. Scott Paul is the president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. I'm going to use AAM uh, going forward, which is a partnership that was established in 2007 by some of America's leading manufacturers and the United Steelworkers Union. Scott and AAM have worked to make American manufacturing and made in America top of mind concerns for voters and our national leaders through their effective advocacy, their policy development work, and data-driven research. And for those of you who know FreightWaves, data-driven is a keynote and a keystone for us. So um, Scott currently serves as the board chair for the National Skills Coalition, is on the board of visitors of the political science department for Penn State. He sits on the leadership council of the Alliance of Manufacturing Foresight. I could keep going with Scott's bio, but I think we've established that this is going to be a perfect way to kick off today. So obviously, Scott, the current circumstance around COVID and the pandemic, let's start with that and sort of go from there. Um, how have the AAM member companies adapted their manufacturing and their supply chains because of COVID-19? George, thank you for that question. And obviously, many of your listeners out there have had their work and personal and family lives uh, disrupted uh, in, in serious ways by, by the pandemic. Um, I can share a bit about what the experience of some of our stakeholders has, has been. Um, and I imagine it will sound very familiar. Uh, you know, a lot of manufacturing is considered essential. Uh, and so, um, you know, while much of the country did shut down, uh, places like steel mills and other manufacturing facilities uh, that were deemed essential either because of national security, uh, homeland security, uh, health preparedness reasons uh, did stay open. Um, and so, uh, you know, we saw workers and managers be on the front line of both taking precautions and also exposing themselves to some risk, frankly, uh, to, to keep our country moving. Um, and I know folks in the transportation logistics sectors obviously faced many of the same concerns. Now, you know, the, the, the market, uh, and this is a bit of an understatement, was seriously disrupted uh, by, by the pandemic. And, you know, steel in particular being kind of a base material and a lot of goods, um, you know, they, they don't like to oversupply the market. And so w when auto production, when other production kind of slowed down or stopped, uh, some of those mills did stop running. Um, and uh, a lot of manufacturing workers uh, were laid off. In fact, more than a million manufacturing workers were laid off just in the first six weeks of the pandemic uh, or so. Now, since that time, and, and since people have gotten into more of an altered routine and 
uh, you know, supply and demand uh, started to roughly realign again, although obviously in dramatically different ways than they were before. Um, we've seen workers uh, come back uh, on the job, uh, but net total from an employment perspective, uh, manufacturing is still about 580,000 jobs in the whole in a sector of almost 13 million workers. Um, and, uh, and we've seen lots of disruption in supply chains. Uh, and so it has taken uh, a great deal of skill, a great deal of patience, a great deal of adaptability um, to try to come to terms with this, uh, with this new market uh, and, and this new reality uh, that many of us are in right now. So let's talk a little bit about how the market shifted and early on, and I appreciate the, the uh, statistics and information around how far have we bounced back. So initially, was I believe there was a significant shift towards emergency products and PPE, March and April, how much of that did occur that you saw? And are you seeing the trend that that is, that is continuing as we go forward? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, both in the, in the PPE and in the health protective supplies and in things like ventilators or other equipment very early on in the pandemic, you saw uh, both manufacturers who were already in those markets uh, have to find ways to scale up, okay? You saw uh, manufacturers like Ford uh, shift dramatically fr from assembling engines to assembling ventilators, um, you know, with new schematics and some new design and, and to do that very nimbly. Um, and you saw a lot of entrepreneurs and communities um, partner together. And I've seen this in many locations where local hospital systems partnered with local manufacturers, whether it was the Cleveland Clinic and local manufacturers in Cleveland or Auctioner Health with local manufacturers around New Orleans uh, to try to get face masks and protective gear and all of that and just go, go straight to these manufacturers and say, can you do this for me? And I think one of the most remarkable things that I'd seen, because I do think there's a lot that we didn't get right about the response uh, to this as a nation and from a public policy perspective. But one of the things that I think that we that we did get right and from a private sector perspective was the the amount of altruism and sense of duty that so many manufacturers had to contribute to be part of the solution to this, uh, you know, I, I think can 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 give us some hope uh, in this time and certainly are contributing to a solution, whether it's dramatically innovating on the pharmaceutical side uh, to develop a vaccine in such an extraordinarily uh, an effective vaccine and, and multiple effective vaccines in, in an extraordinarily short amount of time here and and with dramatic scale get get those into market I mean that's just you, you know that, that that that's unbelievable um, or to see these manufacturers pivot and to make products uh, that our medical professionals are demanding um, is also unbelievable. And, you know, and the things that we take for granted, I mean, you probably remember the day, George, when, you know, toilet paper uh, was a bit like, you know, finding some gold, right? I mean, it was very rare or concert tickets. And, you know, I, I know, a you know, a mill in, in northern Wisconsin that makes uh, toilet paper for Costco. And, 
they found a way to just run around the clock. Uh, and as soon as they were uh, rolling out those, uh, those massive uh, cartons of, of toilet paper, they were going right into the trucks, right off to the stores, and it was just a continuous cycle. And so it was a, um, I mean, look, you know, World War II was obviously a serious threat to our democracy, and it was an all-hands-on-deck enterprise, and we became the arsenal of democracy just churning out this stuff. And so I'm not going to pretend like it was on that scale, but, but it is, I think it was one of the most profound shifts that we've seen certainly since that time uh, to respond to a public emergency uh, and, and to also adapt to just extraordinary circumstances that all of us are facing as individuals who could be exposed uh, to the virus. The, um, it's so well said, the nimbleness of uh, our manufacturing capabilities and then how the supply chain was able to, to deal with that, I think, is, is, is something that we'll look back on and, and really um, and be, be proud of. Uh, interesting. Let's, let me look a little bit going forward. Um, the AAM has a Build Back Better uh, blueprint for this new Biden administration. Speak to that a little bit. What are the, what are the primary aspects of that blueprint? Yeah, thank, thanks, George. And I will say, you know, we're nonpartisan. Um, we, we do work with labor and business, so we've had deep ties both to the Trump administration as well as to the Biden administration. Um, and it, I think it positions us well to be a good voice and effective voice for, for factory workers um, out there. And one of the things, one of the features that I think I, I, I like about the, the Biden plan, and there were certainly a lot of elements of, of what the Trump administration did that I, that I liked as well. I, I want to be clear about that. But, but I, I think that it is clear that our nation has underinvested in our public capital. Um, and, the, you know, and, and we see that just as, as we're recording this in Texas uh, with, with the, you know, with, with the situation with the energy grid there is, is a very tangible example or uh, the, the dam that ruptured in, in Michigan, you know, um, recently that, uh, that displaced uh, lots of folks and caused a lot of damage. I mean, our infrastructure is crumbling. And so it's past time that we address this. But, but to the specific elements of the plan, um, I think that the elements that have me the most excited, first of all, we, we have to get through this pandemic and we have to do it in a way that is fair and equitable to all Americans. And Congress is obviously on track to doing that right now. The second is the real recovery, because that's like the relief and like the triage, George, that I'm talking about. But the, the actual recovery and building a more sustainable and resilient economy is, I think, something that addresses many goals uh, that, that Americans hold dear, whether it's to be uh, aware of our climate future or uh, of, of some of the structural uh, racial inequities that we've seen in our country. And that's where I think that uh, investing in manufacturing uh, can, can, can pay serious dividends forward um, and position us as a clean energy leader uh, so that we are building those electric vehicles right here in the United States rather than importing them from China, or that we are uh, looking at a diverse homegrown uh, energy portfolio, uh, solar, wind, uh, other renewables, uh, along with natural gas and what have you, 
again that is uh, that, that is produced here in the United here in the United States. It would be a silly trade-off for our country just to trade foreign oil for uh, made in China solar panels. I, I think, and, and that's I don't think an idea that uh, Americans are excited about. But I do think that as we look ahead in the century and look at the challenges that we are going to face, that having robust public investment in infrastructure, in clean energy technology, in making sure that we have a skilled workforce, uh, and that means investing in uh, high school level and community, uh, and then uh, career and technical education, post-secondary level for adults and, and kids alike, um, I, I think that's going to be critical as well. And then setting, you know, structuring a set of economic policies that reinforces that and provides the right incentives. And instead of our, our nation being governed by some, I, I guess, philosophy that exists perfectly well in textbooks, but when you look at like our global competitors or, you know, the five-year plans in China or the state control of the economy or the amount of resources that a country like Germany puts into its manufacturing base or some of our Asian competitors, uh, I mean, I don't think, I, I think the, the American entrepreneurial spirit that our ingenuity is, is, is unma unmatched. And I don't think we need to copy and paste any of those plans, but I think that we can have a decidedly American plan that recognizes the value of manufacturing, the value of work as being central to uh, our economic progress. And so that's one of the aspects of the Building Back Better plan uh, that, that I think is that I think is going to be key, both for us to make sure that we're exporting, uh, to, to make sure that we're growing our economy and that we're growing it in a way where there's broadly shared prosperity. It, it, it's so fascinating as you talk about, uh, you know, the, 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 the recent circumstances that have happened with the weather and the impact to the, to, to the Texas uh, power grid and, I, you know, really appreciate you talking about trading oil, you know, for, you know, solar panels coming from, you know, also, you know, coming from, you know, another foreign country. So let, let me, let me, and, and, and by the way, in the, in the world of thinking about power grids, I live four miles that way from a nuclear power plant and I'm in Tennessee with the Tennessee Valley Authority produces one heck of a lot of hydroelectric power. So, I'm pretty certain that between now and the time that we finish this uh, this great conversation, I'm not losing power. I'm gonna I'm gonna be just fine. So let me let me talk a little bit about um, um, the way that um, you're seeing, uh, or are you seeing that manufacturing jobs are being reshored, if you will, because of the disruption and the scare that we went through with so many supply chains being disrupted. And, and having that, that you know, element, uh, offshore element to those supply chains. Are you seeing, a lot of talk happened that that would occur, that we would see more manufacturing jobs coming here. Are you seeing that talk turn into reality? Yeah, that, that, that's a great question. Um, and the answer is both yes and no, um, it, which I'm sure is unsatisfying, but I'll, I'll, I'll explain as, as best as I can. Uh, you, you know, the Trump approach very much focused on kind of deregulation, broad-based tax cuts, and then the tariff combination. Um, certainly disrupted trade, and I'm sure that your <laughs> your listenership, your viewership knows that very well um, about some of the impacts that that had. Um, but I don't, I don't know that it fundamentally altered a lot of the a lot of the dynamics, other than 
uh, folks rethinking China as the sole supplier, particularly for for critical materials. I I think that's certainly underway. Question question about where that lands or how much of it is, I I think, still an an open question. Um, And so... It is, I, I think that, you know, and I'm going to channel, channel a little of our founding fathers here. Um, you know, Alexander Hamilton was our first Treasury Secretary. Also, a lot of people might know him from a musical. He's kind of popular. But, you know, he, you know, when he served with George Washington uh, in, in the Continental Army, they were always complaining about the lack of supplies and how they were dependent on the French and how the British had everything they needed. And there, there was a paucity of American manufacturing capability at the time. And so when they started the administration, one of the things they definitely wanted to set out to do is how can we make more stuff in these 13 new states that we have that are, that are largely formed around a kind of like a, you know, a, a merchant economy and a plantation economy, not a manufacturing economy. And so it took a plan. It, it takes intent to get there. And the Hamilton plan was a bit of tariffs to help start industry up, uh, but also investing in infrastructure. And you've seen this thread throughout our history. Abraham Lincoln with the Transcontinental Railroad, the land-grant university system to support research and to provide broad-based education. You've seen it with uh, uh, Eisenhower with the interstate highway system. And certainly there have been many other iterations of this. But I believe it does take some intent on the part of public policy and the government to make this a reality. So how do you effectively reshore some of that? I think you do have to have the right tax incentives. You have to have a balanced trade policy. I'm not in favor of a fortress America, but I do think we need to continue to push back on unfair trade practices and also realize when there's government subsidizing their industry, our private sector firms, no matter how amazing they are, no matter no matter how productive they are, are going to have hard have a hard time going up against those those trillions of dollars of cash that are subsidizing their their, their competitors at almost any cost. Uh, and, and we need to place a value on our education dollars. And you know, it's great that we have world class Ivy League institutions. I'm all in favor of those. Uh, but unfortunately, some of that has come at the expense of investment in our community colleges and, uh, and, and career and technical education. And, and we certainly have to devote more towards there. So there is a role for government in this. The private sector uh, and the skill of the workers, the, 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 the capability of our managers, uh, the ingenuity of our innovators, that's going to make a difference. But they need, to be, they, they need to be supported by our public policies and not turned away. And so I think we're getting to a moment where more in the Congress, more in the administration, whether it's Republicans or Democrats, kind of recognize that and understand it's not just like deregulation or like a big corporate tax cut that is necessarily going to get us where, that it takes a little more shaping than that to have the economy that we want. Because, yeah, we had a comparative advantage in plantations uh, in 1800, but that didn't serve anybody well, and it wasn't sustainable. Um, we, we can build a 21st century economy that is fair and equitable uh, and has lots of opportunities uh, to, to enter the middle class. Uh, but, but there has to be some intent there, George. Absolutely. So let me spin a little bit to some of what our uh, viewers, are, are, are um, their core competencies are around transportation and logistics. And I'm interested in how the AAM membership 
has been evolving. Do you do you see more emphasis in that area? Do you see your membership either both becoming more sophisticated in transportation logistics or desiring to do so? Oh, absolutely. Every, everybody is becoming smarter about this and more digitized and uh, every day. Um, and um, that that's certainly a welcome trend. Um, and so I think that we'll continue to see that evolve. And I'm excited about the possibilities at the as we look ahead with more autonomy uh, and with more efficiency um, and, and what all of that could mean. I, I, I will also say, and I'll just give the steel supply chain as an example here, that it shows how fragile transportation logistics is, particularly with extreme weather events, as, as, we, as, we, as we've been having conversations about, or the need to, to upgrade our infrastructure, uh, or look at if we're headed towards carbon neutrality in the future, what that's going to mean. And so I think there's much more awareness of that, because if the Great Lakes are freezing up, you can't get your iron ore. Where, where you need to go. And so how else do you do that? Right. And so I, I think that's like, you know, one concern. Uh, and then if we're looking at, uh, uh, you know, carbon pricing, you know, how is that going to impact international shipping? Uh, because, you know, there are lots of benefits to international shipping, but it's frankly a polluting enterprise. And so how do you clean that up uh, in a way, whether it's by air or over, uh, over the water or over land? Um, and everybody is examining that now. And I, I, you know, I feel like, and I, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to find the way to articulate this, that, you know, we, we've certainly got, you know, solar, uh, wind, some of these ideas off the ground. And so, you know, getting to the next level here on things like battery storage and, uh, cleaner transportation, um, whether it's aviation fuel or shipping fuel or uh, w w whatever else that we're talking about, I think that's where the next both private public investment kind of needs to be, uh, because that's obviously where a lot of the carbon output is as well. And so I, I think there's a there's a there's a very great awareness on the on the part of our stakeholders about the need uh, to invest in that and to and to be a part of the solution. So so. Uh, I'm sure that there will be a number over the this eight day uh, global supply chain week uh, that that we're hosting. I'm sure that this will not be the first time that ESG is being thought about or talked about, and I'm sure that it will be talked about in a number of the different uh, conversations and informations that are being provided. And, and the way that you're describing it, it, it sounds like your 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 community are actively pursuing not just lip service now and again nonpartisan and 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 the like uh, that we're that we're talking about but they're actively engaging in ESG considerations and would you would you describe that they'd be more likely to work with other companies that are similarly aligned well, I mean, I think that there will be um, a lot of external, both internal and external forces that will uh, shape those kinds of relationships. Uh, the, the internal being the, the, the mission focus that these companies have and, and, and more and more companies have now. The external being whether it is carbon pricing, 
for the views of the investment community, which I think are growing a little bolder on this and, and, and how public policy shapes that uh, as well. And I just, you know, and so I'm excited about the opportunities uh, rather than kind of blindly ignoring this and thinking that it's somehow going to disappear because the, uh, I think being part of the solution is going to be critical both to uh, keeping these enterprises moving forward, creating job opportunities, and then producing the outcomes that I think all of us want to see from this. Well, we're uh, coming down to just having a, a minute or, or, or two left, but um, you, you, you work with and your, your member companies and your alignment with the, 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 the world of steel and steel workers uh, I just, you know, sort of, just sort of boil it down. Is is steel in 2050? Is there is there an effective way that that will be carbon neutral? Can you do you have a sight line to that? Is that is that a, is that a realistic uh, realistic thought? I I wish I were a metallurgist and can give and could give you a completely sure. informed answer on that, George, but. I, I do believe, again, with this investment um, and, and with, I mean, look, we got to solar, we got to wind, we got to these other technologies with a massive amount of innovation and investment. And so if some of that is shifted to things like clean steel or clean cement or clean transportation, there is no doubt in my mind that, that we can make that happen. And I, I know right now that our stakeholders are already partnering with uh our automotive companies on building the steel for the next generation of automobiles that are going to be, uh, you know, electric and autonomous, and 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 to fit those profiles. Uh, and so that is a process that that, that is underway. I, I think the important thing to drive that progress forward is 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 that there needs to be a global solution to this as well. And this is the part where I say. You know, China makes 55% of the world's steel now. And you know, a lot of that is made in blast furnaces that are, you know, three or four times carbon emitting than those in the United States. And so our guys, you know, aren't doing this in a vacuum. And, and that's why the public policy support uh, and the global cooperation is going to be very important to making sure that America is a leader rather than a lagger laggard and is going to suffer through this. I, I, I want to view this as a, as, a, as a moment where we have immense opportunity, but we do have to get the, the policy right. Um, and, and we can't pretend like that this is happening in a vacuum. Boy, that so well said, uh, leader, not laggard. Thank you for doing this, Scott. Um, sure, I, yeah. I genuinely appreciate it. This has been a fabulous way to, um, to have our, our keynote of uh, military aerospace and manufacturing. So again, Thank you to Scott Paul, Scott, the president of AAM, the Alliance for American Manufacturing. Scott, thank you so much for doing this. George, thank you. Stay safe and be well. Thank you. Same to everybody. Enjoy the rest of Global Supply Chain Week. Be well.